All right, everyone, welcome to a very special edition of Daily Power Parsha. The reason why I say it's very special is because today is the 11th day of Nisan, Yod Aleph Nisan, the birthday of the Rebbe. And it's a very special birthday because the Rebbe was born in 1902, which makes this birthday 120 years. And as you know, 120 years is significant milestone because it's like it's like a full I don't know what to call it a full like I mean lifespan but you know obviously it's but it's like a full measure of life is 120 years by the way um, you might think that when a, after a person passes away so then why would you celebrate a birthday you with me on that because maybe time only exists when a soul's in a body when a soul's out of a body then what is the soul still measuring time but our, our tradition tells us that, yes, that our loved ones, even after their passing, our loved ones still have a relationship with, even though it's not a, um, a, a relationship inside the body anymore, but it's a relationship with the body and with material existence and with this reality that is um, a byproduct or, or, or an integration of time and space. And therefore, the soul also does... Um, the soul is marked, if you will, by these milestones, by these milestone celebrations, and thus it is uh, truly a very special occasion, right? 120 years. It's a big deal. By the way, I should mention wow. that who lived 120 years? Which biblical character lived 120 years? Who knows? Moses. Moses, right? Moshe Rabbeinu. Good. Moses, I think, is the only one that lived exactly, at least in the Torah, that lived exactly 120 years. <coughs> and what we see with regards to Moshe, so first of all, he passed away on his birthday. So on the day of his passing, he turned 120, which means it was, that was his 120th birthday. What did he do on his 120th birthday? So the Torah tells us in the Torah portion of Vayelech, the end of Deuteronomy, Vayelech Moshe, that Moses went. That's how the, the Torah portion opens up at the end of Deuteronomy. Vayelech, not the last one, but close to the end. Vayelech Moshe, Moses went. Where did he go? So, without getting to the details of what exactly he did, the point is, Vayelech Moshe. On his 120th birthday, what did he do? He was moving and shaking, right? He was active. And the message is, we should never stop being active. Certainly, the Rebbe inspired us and inspires us, hopefully, to remain forever active. Reminds me of a story. And, and, and Vayelech means and constantly move forward. Reminds me of a story of... The, the, uh, the chassid lived, passed away not, not so long ago, Remendel Futterfas. I've mentioned stories about him before. He was a, a Chabad guy, Chabad rabbi, who was sent to, the, to, to Siberia by the communists for his efforts on behalf of Judaism. He was part of the, you know, the Chabad or the Jewish underground in Russia. He was one of the organizers. And he ended up in Siberia for, I think, 10 years, give or take a few years. Anyway... So he was uh, always a very gregarious fellow. He was um, friendly, and, and, and even in a, in a tremendous hardship, he, he remained a people's person. And so he made friends with, with a lot of the people that were in Siberia. It wasn't just Jews or rabbis. Most of, it, most of the people in Siberia were you know, not Jewish and ne maybe never met a rabbi. These were individuals that were considered by the communists to be counter-revolutionaries that were unsafe, for the, um, 
for the uh, uh, for the USSR, and, and they they basically sent them away, got rid of them by sending them to Siberia. So one of these people that was with Remendel told him that he had been in his previous life before Siberia. He had been a circus performer, and what did he do in the circus? He was a tightrope walker. Oh. So Remendel had never seen a tightrope walk walker perform before. And it's not like nowadays where you hear something like, oh, let me Google that. Like, what does that look like? Right? And you check it out instantly. You know, see a YouTube video of some dude walking between, you know, Niagara Falls or whatever it is. No. Back in the day, if you didn't know what tightrope walking was, you just didn't know what it was. So this fellow describes it to Remendel, to this chassid. He says, look, you take, uh, you take a string or a wire, whatever it is, you put it between two places, you make it tight, and then somebody walks you know, high up, somebody high above the ground, somebody walks on that line, one foot, you know, before the other foot. Mendel's like, you got, you got to be kidding me. That sounds, that sounds so dangerous. It's like, yeah, you got to pull for balancing this whole deal. Any, any hooks, any, any nets, any um, safety harnesses? No, all natural, no safety, you know, no, uh, no safety nets, no harnesses, garnished. If you fall, it's done. Remendel was amazed. But he almost like didn't believe that this is what this guy did because, you know, somebody can make up a story also. Well, at some point in, <coughs> in the, the uh, Siberia, <coughs> Siberia stay, if you will, so the, the Russian um, guards or officials decided that they were okay with having some sort of talent day or what they called, I guess, a circus day. And this was an opportunity for the various, I guess, inmates in Siberia to be able to show off their talents and perform, I guess, have fun, build camaraderie. I think, I think um, restrictions loosened after Stalin died. And so they, you know, they, they gave a day of fun, if you will, for the inmates. And so this guy, the tightrope walker, so he, uh, that was his chance to get back, on the, uh, get back on the wire. So indeed, that's, that's what happened. They set up a wire for him, and he, you know, everyone gathers amongst other performances, and he gets up there, and he walks on the tightrope, and he walks from one end to the other, and he spins around and walks back from the second point to the first point, and everyone erupts in cheers. Right after the performance, this fellow runs over to Remendel, and he says to Remendel, what do you think? So he's like, unbelievable, it was amazing, I can't believe, just... Blew, blew my mind. He says to he says to tightrope walker, "Tell me, how do you do it? Like, what's the key? What's the key to your success?" So the tightrope walker says, "The key is, you know, when you're walking a tightrope, there's a beginning and an end of the rope, and typically at the end, there's some sort of demarcation, some sort of pole or whatever it is that that is the end, the other side." He said, "The key is to identify the pole, identify the goal, and keep your eyes there." Don't look down. Nope, that's a mistake. Don't look down. Just train your eyes on the destination of the goal. And then he said, you know what the hardest part is? The hardest part is when you reach the end and you're turning around to go back to the beginning. Because for a moment in time, right, as, you, as you're pivoting, you're not seeing this pole and you're not seeing that pole and you're precarious for those few moments um, no worries. Joy, we'll see you. 
Um, for those few moments, you don't see where you're going. And that is the most precarious time. And so, Remendel derived from this a beautiful lesson in life, as he did from most things that he encountered. And the lesson that he derived, that he then later shared at Fabrengens, is that in life, you know, we're all walk, walking a tightrope. At any point, we can fall off. It's, you know, life is precarious on many different levels. To help us succeed, it's very important to identify a goal. What's the mission? What's the goal? What's the destination? And to keep our eyes on that goal till we get there. And to not look down. To not fear like, what's, what would happen if I look down, if I fail? What happens if... No time to think about that stuff. We got to keep on moving forward to our goal. Right? And if we have to pivot, we pivot quickly and then identify the next goal and keep on moving. That is a key to life and success in life and success in walking this tightrope that we call life. And the message for us is on this day, I think, if I could humbly suggest, the Rebbe had a very clear vision. The Rebbe's vision, the Rebbe's goal in life was to encourage all of us and do whatever he could and encourage everyone to do what they can to bring Mashiach, which is, we know what Mashiach is, right? It's uh, the Messiah, but, but what is it? It's a, it's a state of world peace when people are getting along and there's no more fighting and there's no more killing and there's no more war and there's no more <coughs> hunger or pain or jealousy or animosity, anger, etc. The world is healed. Tikkun olam, not just for the environment, but straight up tikkun olam, the world is finally fixed. The world is healed. That's the goal. And I think that a, um, you know, one thing to think about on this day of Yod Aleph Nisan, the 11th of Nisan, the birthday of the Rebbe, 120 years, is like Moshe didn't stop moving, right, to the end. Moshe did 120, he's still moving, because he had a goal also, right? So he had a goal, didn't stop moving. So it's up to us, each of us, to keep on moving to that goal. We know what the goal is. We get there every step, every little step is one step closer to the goal. Every mitzvah that we do, every mitzvah that we encourage someone else to do is one step closer. So that's a, by way of introduction, a little uh, Fabrengen opener to inspire us all to commit to another mitzvah today, another step forward. Well, first of all, keep our eye on the prize. Keep our eye on the goal, number one. Number two, take one step closer. Number three, help another person or encourage someone else to take one step further in this goal, on this journey toward Mashiach. All right, now on to our study, now on to the show. So this week is a very interesting and unique week. Why do I say that? Torah portion-wise, because this week is the week before Pesach, Passover. Passover begins Friday night, first day is Shabbat, and because of that, um, because of that, we're not going to read the typical Torah portion, the Shabbat. Instead, we're going to read a special section related to Passover and the Exodus. Are you with me on that? Like, we're right now in the book of Leviticus. We're talking about ritual purity and impurity. We talked about Sarat a few weeks ago. We spoke about, um, sorry, last week and this week. Sorry, <laughs> try that again. Few, two weeks ago and last week, we spoke about Sarat. We spoke about other forms of Ritual purity and impurity, spoke about forms of ritual purification, etc. But come this Shabbos, Saturday morning, we're not going to read about Leviticus. 
we're going to turn back the clock and go back to Exodus because it's the first day of Passover. And on Passover, you read a Passover reading. You don't read the typical on a holiday. You don't read the typical reading. You read a holiday reading. Next, Shabbat. So a week from Saturday, it's the last day of Passover. The last day of Passover, we're also going to read about Passover. The splitting of the sea, whatever it is. We're going to read about the adventures of the Exodus. We're not going to read about Leviticus. It's only going to be in the third Shabbos from now. So not this Shabbat, not the next one, but the one after that, that will resume the typical order of the Torah portions as we've been going through them. And uh, that, I, be, I, I feel like that we should do that Torah portion in a few weeks. After Passover, we'll have a full week to get caught up with the Torah portion. If we do it this week, then we're going to do it again in a few weeks. So I think we can take this opportunity to study the readings of Passover. So what are we actually going to read on Passover? So that's what I'd like to study with you today and Rabbi, hopefully tomorrow. Does yeah. that mean that we do some portions twice over the cycle? Oh yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. That's exactly what that means. We do it in order, right, in the right order, and then we do it again when we pull it out for a holiday reading. Exactly. Exactly. So let's do that. That's my suggestion. I think it's, uh, I think it makes sense to me. So let's jump in. The Chabad.org, of course, uh, organizes everything for us. It's, uh, it's always a pleasure to utilize the platform. Torah reading for Passover. By the way, I'll encourage everybody um, <coughs> by way of, um, by way of Passover PSA, public service announcement, I would encourage everybody to sell your chametz on Chabad.org or some other way, if you can sell it some other way in a kosher fashion. But Chabad.org is a great way to do this. Go to Chabad.org, check out the Passover section, and sell your chametz. What that means is any chametz that you're not getting rid of before the holiday, um, you should put away in a closet, in a pantry, in a drawer, whatever it is, put it away, tape it up, and sell that area. Sell the chametz um, in that area and just general in your house in case you, in case you forgot anything. You know, and you don't, you're, you're forgetting where some chametz is, sell the whole thing, and that way it's ownerless and you're not on the hook for owning chametz on Passover. So it's a little PSA, public service announcement. Let's jump in now to the Torah reading for Passover. Um, this is going to be, as you see here in the drop down, this is first, well, below the drop down, first day of Passover, which will be this Shabbat. So this Saturday morning, this is what we're going to read. And it comes from Exodus chapter 12. This is the instruction prior to the Exodus, leading into the actual Exodus. So I'm going to read. It's going to sound familiar. We studied this, you know, when Exodus a few months ago. Let's jump in. Moses summoned all the elders of Israel. This is still in Egypt. And said to them, draw forth or buy for yourselves sheep for your families and slaughter the Passover sacrifice. So here is the commandment that Moses conveys to the people, first the elders, then to the people, says, Mishku, Mishku, make sure you acquire, draw forth, or buy, somehow get a hold of a sheep. And that sheep is going to be used for the Paschal sacrifice. And you shall take a bunch of hyssop and immerse it in the blood that is in the basin. And the implication here is that when you slaughter the Passover sacrifice, you collect the blood in the basin, and then you take a bunch of hyssop and you dip it into the blood, and you shall extend to the lintel and to the doorpost 
the blood that is in the basin. In other words, paint the door frame red with blood of the offering, and you shall not go out. Any man from any man, or there's any person from the entrance of his house until morning. No leaving the house. This is strict quarantine. In our language, we would call this a lockdown. You are not allowed to leave your homes. Bring uh, um, slaughter the Passover sacrifice. Paint the doorway red with the blood. Do not leave the house all night until morning. Why? What's going to happen? Moses continues to tell the people, the Lord will pass to smite the Egyptians and he will see the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts and the Lord will pass over, oh, look at that, pass over, Pesach, Pasach, right, right here in the Hebrew, Ufasach, he will pass over the entrance to your house, houses and he will not permit the destroyer to enter your houses to smite you. So, so the angel of death or God himself Will um, will identify the blood and not go in, and uh, will not take you out. God forbid, with the death of the firstborn, tenth plague, and you shall keep this matter as a statute for you and for your children forever. So Moses tells the, pe- tells the people, always bring a Passover sacrifice. Now they don't always have to paint the doorpost and the lintel red with blood because not always, not every year is there going to be death of the firstborn, a plague ravaging. The, uh, the, 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 the place. Draw forth if you have your own or buy if you don't have your own. How much was a bunch of hyssop? Rashi explains three stalks are called a bunch. Now you know. Look at that. How much hyssop do we need? Three. Three stalks. Perfect. All right. Let's continue. Reading two. By the way, again, on Shabbat, we always read seven readings. So we take the holiday reading, which is much shorter than a regular Torah reading, a full Torah portion, and we divide into seven readings. So you'll see it's very short. It's like four or five verses, each one. And it shall come, to uh, at least until we get further and we see how many verses there are and some other ones, perhaps. And it shall come to pass, Moses continues to tell the people, tell the elders, that when you enter the land, uh, it shall come to pass when you enter the land, that land being the land of Israel. So already in Egypt they're being told about Israel, that the Lord will give you as he spoke, that you shall observe this service. In other words, when you come to the land of Israel, then you shall observe this service, the service of the Paschal Lamb. And it will come to pass if your children say, what is this service to you? In other words, if it will come to pass at a future time that your children ask you the question, what is this service to you? What are you doing? Why are you offering? Because you're supposed to offer it for all time, a Passover offering. Well, we don't have a temple, but as long as there was a temple, they offered it. So in a future generation, your kids might say, what are you doing with the lamb, with the sheep? What's, what's with the Passover sacrifice? What are you doing? So you shall say, or at least what's with the animal and the sacrifice? You shall say, the answer is, it is a Passover sacrifice to the Lord. For he passed over. See that? Passed over. It's a Pesach. Pesach. It's a Passover sacrifice. Asher Pesach. Because he passed over. The houses of the children of Israel in Egypt when he smote the Egyptians and he saved our houses. 
And upon hearing all this, the people kneeled and prostrated themselves before God. So the children of Israel went and did as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. So they did. They did exactly what they needed to do. They got the, they, they got the sheep or the lamb, for the Paschal lamb. They got it ready. And they, uh, they, they brought this offering in Egypt the night of the 10th plague. Okay, let me, uh, let me toggle some Rashi here. Rashi says, Scripture makes this commandment of the Paschal offering contingent upon their entry into the land. In other words, it says, when you enter the land, then you shall observe the service. Right? When you enter the land, you shall observe the service. So you don't have to do it until you get to Israel. Um, but in the desert, Rashi explains, they were ob obligated only to bring one Passover sacrifice, the one they performed in the second year, which they did by divine mandate. So in the desert, they only brought, only on the first anniversary of the Exodus did they bring the Paschal Lamb, the Passover offering. After that, for the next 38 or so years, 39 years, they didn't bring a Passover offering until they entered the land of Israel. Okay. So why did they kneel and prostrate themselves, Rashi says, in thanksgiving? Not a form of awe or fear, but thanksgiving and joy. For the tidings, the news of the redemption, the entry into the land of Israel, and the tidings of the children they would have. They got three messages. They got three promises. They were told about redemption, about the Exodus. They were told that they're going to end up in Israel. And they were told that they would have kids who would ask at some point in time, what are you doing? So they heard for themselves, they heard that they're going to have redemption, a land, and a legacy. And so they were overjoyed upon hearing that news. All right. Let's continue with reading number three. Again, these are short readings. See, so far, each one has about four, four, four verses. Came to pass at midnight. Midnight. Night of the Exodus. And the Lord smote every firstborn in the land of Egypt. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who is in the dungeon and every firstborn animal, all the firstborn were smitten, smoted. Whatever the right word is, they were, they were destroyed, they were killed in this plague. And Pharaoh rose at night. Pharaoh was also a, first, a, for, a firstborn, he and his servants. And all the Egyptians, everyone woke up that night. No one could sleep. And there was a great outcry in Egypt. For there was no house in which no one was dead. In other words, there was a death in every single Egyptian home. Even if there wasn't a firstborn in that home, the oldest, <coughs> sorry, the oldest died. Every house had death. Every family tasted tragedy. The whole Egypt was in tears and in deep grief. So Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron at night, and he said, Get up and get out from among my people, both you as well as the children of Israel, and go worship the Lord as you have spoken. Just leave. And... Other, uh, unlike his previous, the previous tune that Pharaoh was singing, 
He changed his mind. He says, you know, take whatever you want. Take also your flocks and your cattle as you've spoken and go. But you shall also bless me. Please pray that I survive this night. Okay. Rashi. Again, these are, we, we, um, we studied this in depth a few months ago when we, when we were going through Exodus. But, you know, Passover is coming and this is what we're going to read on Passover. So we're doing this again. Um, it says that um, at midnight, and Rashi here doesn't say it, but another Rashi somewhere else, the Torah says, which means exactly at, at the halfway point of the night, only God knows exactly when that is, at the precise moment that it's halfway through. So that's when this happened. Rashi says, every firstborn, even a firstborn of another nation who was in Egypt. Imagine somebody was on business from another nation, but they were firstborn. If they were in the boundaries, borders of, of Egypt, they were taken that night as well. Um, firstborn of Pharaoh. Pharaoh too was a firstborn, as I mentioned, but he remained alive uh, from amongst the firstborn. Concerning him, God says, but for this reason, I've allowed, I've allowed you to stand in order to show you my strength. In other words, God wanted Pharaoh to see what was going to happen. If God had taken Pharaoh, if God had killed Pharaoh that night, Pharaoh would have never seen the Exodus. He would have never seen the splitting of the sea. He would have never experienced those miracles. So God says, I'm keeping you alive, Pharaoh, so that you can bear witness to what's about to unfold. Let's continue inside. Firstborn of the captive also died. Why? Because they rejoiced at Israel's misfortune. They were also part of the problem. Even the captives in Egypt were part of the slavery problem. Um, there was no house in which no one was dead. As I mentioned, if there was a firstborn, he was dead. If there was no firstborn, the oldest household member was called the firstborn. As it says, I too shall make him a firstborn. All right. Um, basically, what's going on is that every house, every home, every household experienced death and devastation, and just abject terror that night. He called, Moses, he called for Moses and Aaron, Rashi says, from the Mechilta, this tells us that Pharaoh went around to the entrances, the doors of the house of the city, and cried out, where is Moses staying? Where is Aaron staying? Literally looking for their lodgings. They had always come to him. They had all, whenever they spoke with him, Pharaoh, they had come to the palace. Now Pharaoh is looking for them. How do you find Moses and Aaron? How do you find so you, Door to door. Hey, do you know where they live? Do you know where they are? Fourth reading. Again, four verses, very short. So the Egyptians took hold of the people to hasten to send them out of the land. In other words, they literally, physically said, get out of here to the Jewish people. Leave. For they said, otherwise, I'm adding that word in, we are all dead. In other words, we're all going to get destroyed. With this, with this death. It's starting with the firstborn. Who knows who's, who's next? Let's get the Jews out of here. So the people, the Jewish people, picked up their dough when it was not yet leavened. Oh, that becomes important, right? Unleavened dough. They picked up their dough, their leftovers bound in their garments on their shoulders. They put that on their shoulders. And the children of Israel did according to Moses' order. And they borrowed from the Egyptians. Borrowed, as if they ever gave it back. Borrowed. Cleaned out silver objects, golden objects, and garments. The, and that was 
the severance, if you will, that the people got, the Jewish people got for all those years of slave labor, what God had promised to Abraham 400 years prior at the covenant of the parts, that your children, your descendants will be slaves, but afterwards they will leave with great wealth. There you go. They took out the silver and the gold and the garments, and the Lord gave the people favor in the eyes of the Egyptians, and they lent them. In other words, they said, sure, take it. And the Jews emptied out Egypt. Let's see, Rashi. They were afraid. We are all dead. They're afraid that everyone's going to die. Ordinary people too are dead, they said. Not just firstborn, five or ten in one house. The angel of death was running rampant. The Egyptians did not permit them to tarry long enough for it to leaven. You know when you're baking dough, baking challah, and you get to the stages where the dough has to rise, and you're thinking, I don't have time for this. I don't have time. I got to run. I got to, I got to, I got to, I got to, I got to move. I have a, I got to head to Shabbat dinner and I need, I need this baked, but it hasn't risen yet. Right? Ah, it's like, it's the worst because your dough can't rise. That's what happened here. The Egyptians said, uh, my, 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 uh, my friends, the Jewish people leave, but my, our dough is rising. Leave. Forget the dough. Let the dough not rise. Hence matzah. That's the origin story of the matzah that we eat at least in this understanding. So they took the unleavened dough, they took their leftovers, which are the remaining matzah and bitter herbs that they ate the night before, or not the night before, but that night, the last, uh, the the dinner, right? Dinner of, of that night. On their shoulders, why did they put the dough on their shoulders? Although they took many animals with them and they could have put the food on the animals, right? As people traditionally will do. They carried the remaining matzahs and bitter herbs on their shoulders because they loved the mitzvot. These were divinely commanded and so they put, they carried them on their own bodies. So the Egyptians gave them silver objects, golden objects and garments, Rashi says. The garments meant more to them, to the Egyptians, than the silver and the gold. The most precious item of the Egyptians was the garments, and thus, whatever is mentioned later in the verse is more esteemed. That comes from the Mechilta. And they lent them, Rashi says, even when, sorry, even what the Israelites, the Jewish people, did not request, the Egyptians gave them. You said, lend me one. And they responded, take two and go. Just get out of here. They were more than generous. They, were more, they, were, they, they gave more than the Jews even asked. And they emptied out. They emptied out Egypt that night. Reading number five. The children of Israel journeyed, again, a relatively short reading. The children of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Sukkot. This is the Exodus. That's when they bust out of Dodge. When they bust out of Egypt. Ramses is inside Egypt. Sukkot is outside of Egypt. They went from Ramses to Sukkot. How many people? About 600,000 on foot. That's only the men. Besides for the young children and of course the women. So 600,000 of just the men folk. And also a great mixed multitude went up with them. And flocks and cattle, very much livestock. They went with a lot of people and a lot of animals. But who are this great mixed multitude? That refers to Egyptians that wanted to join the crew. Egyptians who said, you know what? We're hitching our... Selves to the Jewish wagon. 
We are going to jump on and hang on for the ride. This is the mixed multitude, the Erev Rav that went with the people. And of course, the people, they baked the dough that they had taken out of Egypt as unleavened cakes. They didn't have, didn't have a chance to rise for it and not leaven. For they were driven out of Egypt and they could not tarry. And also they had not made provisions for themselves. So they had to take the food. They couldn't leave it there. So they had to take the food. They had to take the dough that hadn't risen. And they made the best of what they had because they were on the move. And the habitation of the children of Israel that they dwelled in Egypt how long? Eh, not exactly, but from, you know, the earliest point that we could possibly count, from when Egypt was, 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 was um, discussed as a, as a destination for the Jewish people, or at least as a temporary place of dwelling, that was 430 years. They only spent, from the time Jacob came down to the Exodus, uh, Jacob came down with the family, that was 210 years. But 430, if you count, like, I don't know, back, back, uh, background stories. It came to pass at the end of 430 years, and it came to pass in that very day, the high noon of that day, that all the legions of the Lord went out of the land of Egypt. It is a night. Passover is a night. It's a night of anticipation for the Lord to take them out of the land of Egypt. This night is the Lord's guarding all the children of Israel throughout their generations. It is the time that celebrates and marks the Exodus. All right, let's look at Rashi. Ramses to Sukkot was actually 120 mil apart, which is a pretty decent distance. Yet they arrived there instantly, as it says, and I carried you on eagle's wings. So miraculously, the, they, they traversed a great distance in a very short amount of time. Men 20 years and older were, were 600,000 or so. A great mixed multitude, Rashi says, a mixture of nations of proselytes, which means people who converted or joined the Jewish faith. They baked the dough, matzah, matzah cakes, cakes of matzah. Dough which did not leaven is called matzah, as we know. Rashi says, on the end, not made provision for themselves for the trip, you know how Jews get on trips. You got to pack food. And here they didn't really have food, right? And they didn't ask, how will we go into the desert without provisions? Rather, they believed and left. That's it. This, this stands in great merit to the Jewish people that they left, even though they didn't have a plan, even though they didn't know what tomorrow would bring and how they would get food. They left. They followed God unconditionally without any hesitation. All right, uh, 430 years. Rashi had long Rashi explaining how you get that number. Altogether, from the time that Isaac was born until now, there were 400 years. Now, Isaac never lived in Egypt. Never, never happened. So it wasn't 430 years of Egyptian physical, be, physically being in Egypt. From the time that Isaac was born until the Exodus was 400 years. From the time that Abraham had seed, I had a child, the prophecy that your seed will be strangers will be fulfilled. And there were another 30 years from the decree between the parts until Isaac was born. So there you go. From, and I mentioned this before, from the covenant to the parts where God says in the future your progeny will be slaves, etc. Referring to his son Isaac and his son Jacob and the 12 tribes and their children, their descendants that would be end up, end up being slaves in Egypt. From the time that God foretold of this exile, of this slavery... It was 430 years. Hence, the 400 years of servitude begin, be, are counted here from when God signals that this will happen. 
skip the rest of that Rashi. It came to pass at the end of these 430 years, on that very day, Rashi says, this teaches us that as soon as the end of this period arrived, as soon as it was time, the omnipresent God did not keep them even as long as the blink of an eye. They didn't stay in Egypt, not one uh, fraction of a second longer than they needed to, for whatever reason. As long as they needed to be in Egypt, for whatever reason, they were there. The moment it was done, they were out. That's it. On the 15th of Nisan, the day of the Exodus, the angels came to Abraham to, to bring him tidings. They said, God has fulfilled his promise. He had your children enslaved in Egypt, and now your children are no longer slaves. On the 15th of Nisan, Isaac was born. On the 15th of Nisan, the decree between the parts was decreed. A lot of things happened on that very special day, 15th day of Nisan, which is coming up this Shabbat. Um, night of anticipation, anticipating the promise of taking God taking us out of God taking them out of the land of Egypt. Um, okay, it's a night of guarding throughout the generations. From that time onward, Rashi says it is the Israel. Um, it the Israelites are, is guarded, or the Jewish people are guarded from harmful spirits like the matter that is stated, and He will not permit the destroyer. In other words, in other words, on the night of Passover, and this is relevant to Friday night, we have a special blessing that we are free of danger. We are protected by God. Leil Shimurim. It's an evening of divine watching, divine protection. Reading number six. Here we go. Another back to four or five verses. Five verses. The Lord said to Moses and to Aaron, this is the statute of the Passover sacrifice. More laws pertaining to it. No estranged one may partake of it. And every man's slave purchased for his money, you shall circumcise him, then he will be permitted to partake of it. So if there's a slave, that, that, that now non-Jewish slave, but now is working for a Jewish family, has a circumcision, then he can eat of this paschal lamb. A sojourner or hired hand may not partake of it. Somebody who's just doing work, a hired hand, not an not a indentured individual. Nope. If, if they're, assuming they're not Jewish, etc. It must be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the meat out of the house of the outside, neither shall you break any of its bones. These are all signs of opulence and wealth, which means that we're not sharing, we're eating, we're consuming, we're enjoying, and we don't break the bones. People would break the bones back in the day and suck out the marrow, whatever it was, like to get as mu- the, mo- the most you can get from the food. When you're living free, when you're living lavishly, you don't need to suck the bones, right? Good to go. What you have, you have, and you have plenty, and you're enjoying it. The entire community of Israel shall make it, shall make this Paschal Lamb offering, which is then eaten at the Seder. At least back in the day, that's what was going on. Finally, reading number seven, for this Shabbat, the Passover reading ends, and you should, sorry, and should a proselyte reside with you, he shall make a a Passover sacrifice to the Lord. All his males shall be circumcised, and then he may approach to make it, and he will be like the native of the Lamb, but no uncircumcised male may partake of it. So basically, someone who converts to Judaism, etc., is 100% on board with the Paschal Lamb, assuming that the male has a, a bris milah, a circumcision, which you have to, 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 to convert. But uncircumcised men may not partake of the Passover sacrifice. That is divine law. Yes, Donna? I mean, it may be take us too off track, and it's not a very positive Discussion, but I was just wondering, what about the few Jews that convert out of Judaism? You can't convert out of Judaism. Okay, so even though they say they're like... Yeah, but it doesn't... Yeah, I mean, I could say that I'm a tree. 
It's not, I'm not really a tree. And I'm not trying to be, um, you know, dismissive. On the contrary, that's how deep Judaism is. It's like saying that I wanna, I'm going to erase my DNA. Okay? How's that going to work? What exactly are you going to do? You can't really do that. I mean, you could say that you did that, but you didn't actually do that. So Judaism has a mechanism to get in, but you can't get out. It's like the Hotel California, right? You can check in. It's also kind of like some people can't who try out. to disown their parents. You know, you can't do that really either. I mean, you know what I'm saying? I mean, legally you could in the U.S. You can, you know, you can legally separate, but you can't undo parental DNA in the child. Correct. You can still do a paternity and maternity test and find out who is the father, the mother, the child. You can still create those. You can still d- discern those ties. And so we believe in Judaism. Part of the, the rules of Judaism is you can come in, but you can't go out. Again, you could say you went out. Famously, Bob Dylan converted out of Judaism at some point, and then he came back in, and and he was wondering, like, you know, what do you have to do? Do you have to like? The answer is. You don't, have to, you, don't, you don't really have to do much because nothing really happened. Yeah, it wasn't great. You know, it's not great. Forget about him. It's not great to, like, you know, renounce Judaism. God forbid. No one should ever do that. But, you know, it doesn't actually change anything. It doesn't actually undo anything. Just now, uh, you know. By the way, this question was asked historically. It's a very important historical question um, uh, to, to great rabbis. What, what you know, in 1492... When, uh, when Spain, and then a few years later, I think it was 1497, 98, 99, when Portugal also got rid of the Jews. The provision was, if you convert out of Judaism, you can stay. <laughs> so what happens if the person, the family decided, you know what, lose all my money, you know, no place to go, but stay Jewish, or theoretically, it, didn't, it actually didn't work out for anybody, but, um, you know, convert out of Judaism and, and keep my mansion, some people opted to, you know, to choose what's behind door number two. And then later on, eventually, again, you have to understand, we, there was the expulsion in 1492, and then there's the Spanish Inquisition. Two different things. What was the Inquisition? So in 1492 in Spain, there was the expulsion. All Jews had to leave. Unless you said you're not Jewish and formally converted, again, according to their understanding, converted out, then you could stay. And then they did the Inquisition, which was worse. What was the Inquisition? They were inquiring as to whether or not the Jews that said they converted really left Judaism and dropped all their practice. And if they would find traces of Judaism, they would burn people at the stake. Atodefa. That's what they would do. Burn people at the stake. Horrific torture. Horrific torture. And the truth is, they made up stories. Right? They made up stories. Even people that weren't, uh, that weren't, that, they were still going after the Jews. The bottom line is, even the Jew that said they're not Jewish, they still went after. Right? They still went after. So, halakhically, this came up. You know, let's say a family... Oh, and then at that point, when families, when Jewish families that had officially converted out realized that they're still not safe, so then many of them ran for their lives at that point. So they didn't leave initially, but then they left. So what happens? Their kids or whatever it is, they come to a rabbi and they say, look, you know, we escaped with our lives. Or maybe those people themselves, we escaped, we finally made it out. But 
Somewhere along, the, along this journey, we officially converted out of Judaism. What do we need to do? Are we in? Are we out? Do we need to convert back to Judaism? And the answer was always no. You, di- you don't need to convert back into Judaism because you are still Jewish. Now, should you go to mikvah or whatever it is, a ceremonial thing? Maybe. But not in the context of conversion to Judaism, right? If you're born a Jew, you're a Jew. If you convert to Judaism, you're a Jew. Convert out of Judaism? Nah, it doesn't mean anything. You don't have to convert back. You're good. You're good to go. Okay. Now, um, symbolically, was there some sort of, you know, thing to do or say or feel? Sure. I'm sure some rabbis came up with something along the way to, like, make the person feel, you know, like they're, you know, officially redonning their Judaism. But essentially and halachically, nothing. Good to go. In a good way, good to go, right? Still, uh, still with that same uh, Jew spirit. Okay, back inside. So, yeah. Someone who converts, as long as he, in this case, if it's he is circumcised, yes. No uncircumcised male may partake. The implication there is even if they're born Jewish but not circumcised, they cannot eat the Paschal Lamb. And that's a unique thing to the Paschal Lamb. We don't find that necessarily by other mitzvot. It doesn't say, like, only if you're circumcised can you sit in a sukkah. You don't see that. When it comes to the Passover lamb, by the way, um, one of the reasons for this, I believe, maybe we'll look at Rashi, is because that was one of the mitzvot that they were encouraged, that they were told to do before the Exodus, is Brit Milah, which means that it's almost contingent. It's part of that package, if you will. Right? It's like the circumcision, the Paschal lamb, so they go together. You can't really have one without the other. There shall be one law for the native and for the stranger who resides in your midst. One law. Same law. Fair and just. All the children of Israel did as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so so they did. And it came to pass on that very day. Torah is just repeating, you know, the Exodus theme, which is kind of cool. That the Lord took the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt with their legions. They left with all their troops. They They weren't an army. They were slaves. But the Torah calls them legions, troops. They were an army of God. The God Squad, battling darkness with light. All right. Um, take a look. No uncircumcised male may partake of it. Rashi says, even one whose brothers die because of circumcision. Halacha says, what happens if, God forbid, I mean, God forbid, right? Imagine if. A boy, a young baby is circumcised and then dies. And the next baby is circumcised dies. After a few times, you may not want to circumcise the next kid. You with me on this? Bad track record. For whatever reason, the family that... I understand medical science today, we probably could figure this out and solve it. But back in the day, if there was a pattern, you might not circumcise. Rashi says in that case, you still can't eat it. Still can't eat the Passover. Even if it's, no, even if it's not... a. a snubbing God, Torah, the mitzvot, even if it's for health reasons, no circumcision, still can't eat the Passover lamb. There's, there's something about the Paschal offering and circumcision that go together. All right, one law. Yeah, a proselyte and a native regarding other commandments of the Torah. The one, and this is proselyte as I believe someone who, the, someone who converts, the, the one who converts, the one who was born Jewish, same law, same, same system, same truth. 
Okay, that is, that is it for today. That is it for the first day of Passover. Um, we have readings also for the other days of Passover. The main days of the holiday in the diaspora, of course, are day one, two, and seven and eight. The middle days are called Chalamoid, in which it's still Passover. We still only eat matzah and achametz, but we can do some work, get in a car, you know, write, whatever, like these types of things, although we're supposed to minimize our work those days because, you know, whatever. We use a computer, electricity, etc. But day one and two and day seven and eight, those are the holiday, like Shabbat-like holiday days. And that is that. So we did day one, which this week will be actually Shabbat. Day two will be next Sunday. And as you see here, this is from Leviticus. Look at that, Leviticus. And it talks about the holidays and the sacrifices that are to be run on the holidays. On Yom Tif, you only have five readings, not six, not seven. You only do five readings. See that? Five readings. So the first day of the holiday, you should also do five, right? Why do you do seven? Because it's Shabbat. Since it's Shabbat, you use the number of readings for Shabbat, even though you're doing a holiday reading, but you divide into seven. On the holiday, sorry, on the holiday that falls out on a weekday, you only do the five readings. Day seven is on Friday. Next Friday, not this Friday, but the following Friday. So again, five readings. And the final day of Passover is again on Shabbat. And of course, you guessed it, there are seven readings once again. Okay, so that's a little bit about the structure. And we read today about the Exodus. I don't know about you, but I'm feeling much more free and liberated. So, as we get ready for Passover, let's remember, blink of an eye. Soon as we're ready, the redemption will happen. In, in Egypt, God didn't hold them one second, one fraction of a second beyond the time that was ripe for the Exodus. The same thing we believe for us, may that time be now. Okay, it didn't happen. But may it be, you know, the next now that Mashiach comes, not even longer than a blink of an eye, and we should have a world that we all wish for. In, our, in the depth of our hearts, we all wish for a world of Mashiach. Even if we don't want to use that word, it doesn't matter. That's the world that we want. And we understand that there's no better time for our redemption to happen than in the month of redemption in the days leading up to the anniversary of the redemption from Egypt, may it be today and speedily in our days, and let us say, Amen. All right, on that note, uh, we'll conclude for today. Amen. Tonight, thank you, thank you. Tonight we have the final session of You Be the Judge, called, the class is called the Do-Gooder. What happens if somebody does unsolicited work, unsolicited work for you? So you benefited, but you didn't contract an agreement with them, but they benefited you, and now they want to charge you. Are you on the hook legally, ethically? We'll look at this from a U.S. law perspective and a Jewish perspective, and we'll culminate, we'll wrap up that course tonight. Tomorrow is Wednesday. My plan is DPP, and we'll do the next reading or the next short reading so we may do like two days of the holiday tomorrow like day two and day seven maybe ish actually no we don't have to we don't we don't have to force it like that we could just do day two and then next week we can do some stuff okay we'll figure we'll figure out a game plan but my plan right now is that we'll get together tomorrow if something changes 
because, you know, it's holiday season. There's a lot of stuff going on here, a lot of moving pieces, getting ready for Yom Tif. So, um, you know, I, I, in advance, I'm letting you know that things may change. Check your local listings, and I will keep you in the know about any scheduling adjustments. But my plan as of right now is tomorrow, DPP, Wednesday at noon-ish. What, what about Wednesday night? No Torah studies. We're done. We're done till after the holiday. So two weeks we're off. We are off for two Wednesdays. Right, tomorrow night and then the week, uh, one week later, a week from tomorrow night is also Passover. No Wednesday night class. Correct. Correct. It's just DPP. All right. Wish we haven't yeah. when to send the Ramat? Officially till Friday morning. After Friday morning after like 1230-ish, we're not supposed to own chametz anymore. We're also not supposed to see it, right? We're supposed to get rid of the chametz, either burn it, sell it, both. By, I think it's like 1237 or something, about 1230, Friday afternoon. Um, I think it's 1230, maybe it's 11, it's somewhere around like midday on Friday. Try and stay out of grocery stores the whole week? No, 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 it's not yours. You can go there. No, no, it's fine. When I was oh, sorry, I should have clarified. When I said you shouldn't see chametz, you shouldn't see your own chametz. But if you're walking by a bakery, okay, maybe don't like, like you know, just like put your face against the window. That's like a little smell it. Yeah, but that's also it's really fine. But no, we're not supposed to see our own chametz. So look, I, I I know what's in my pantry. I have you know the kids have cereals and whatever it is. That's like where well, we got that stuff in the pantry. I have pasta. What else do we have in there? We have like a pancake mix, basic stuff that you have in a pantry. Flour, yeah. So uh, there's some stuff. I'm not gonna get. I'm not gonna get rid of everything before Pesach. Why? It could stay. Stuff can seal boxes can stay for a week. You know, eight days, not a problem. So everything's gonna stay in there. Close up my pantry door. Put a little piece of tape on it, and I'm gonna sell it on Chabad.org. That's how I'm gonna roll. And then I don't open it up in the holiday because it's not, not my area. It's not my, you know, it's not my chametz. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna go in there. That's it. I'll pull out whatever I need before the holiday, and that's it. So we finish eating chametz. You know, I might as well pull up the times just so we have an accuracy here. Uh, give me a second. Jewish calendar, zmanim. Here we go. You buy it back? No. Yeah, they do it. They do it. That's all, everything happens automatically. You have to wait for an hour after the holiday. It's a good question you just asked. You have to wait for an hour after Yom Tif for that transaction, it's an actual trans transaction, for that transaction to happen. So you basically are waiting, let's say the holiday ends, I'm gonna throw out a round number, let's say the holiday ends 9.45, Saturday night, 10.45, go back in and, and start uh, grabbing your chametz. Um, you can also keep chametz in your freezer, you can have like one section of the freezer that you kind of put a piece of paper over and just, you know, you don't see it and that shelf is chametz or whatever it is. There's different ways to do it. The point is to just keep it, you know, you sell, you officially sell it and you don't see it and you're not involved with it. The late, finish eating chametz Friday morning by 11.26 a.m. and sell and burn chametz before 12.31 p.m. Friday afternoon. So that is, those are the times in Atlanta, Georgia, 30306. Check your local listings for that. You can always go Chabad.org. They have a section called Zmanim, Z-M-A-N-I-M, Zmanim, which means halachic Jewish times. And, um, and that is, and you type in your zip code, and boom, it will tell you on Friday your times. 11, I forgot already, 11.26, no eating after that, no, well, no eating chametz after that, 11.26, so you could have 
cereal and you can have cake and you can have cheese, whatever you want. Go crazy Friday morning. But after 12.31, sorry, after 11.26, no more eating. And you have basically an hour to make sure that everything is away and there's a tradition to burn some chametz, you know, see it go up in fire. There's a special tradition. Even if theoretically you don't have any chametz, they sold everything, I got rid of everything. I don't have anything. You're supposed to have some chametz to officially burn as part of the, the ceremony of burning the chametz, like eradicating the chametz. Anyway, we're not violent people, but we burn chametz. That's, uh, that's, that's our sign of, not protest, but that's our sign of spiritual, you know, eradicating the, uh, the negativity, if you will, of the chametz and what it represents. Okay, so that's, uh, that's that. Oh, and by the way, I think I mentioned this at some other class at some point, Thursday night would be the bedikas chametz, is when you check for chametz. You check at nightfall, you put 10 pieces of bread around your house or apartment, and you search for the chametz with a, traditionally with a spoon and a feather and a paper bag. You take the spoon, you, kn- you take the feather, you knock it into the spoon, you take the spoon, you drop it into the paper bag, and that is what you burn on Friday by 12.31 here in Atlanta. By the way, when do you do B'dikas Chametz? After 8.34 p.m. Thursday night. With a candle to illuminate the way, you turn off all the lights, or at least room by room, you turn off the lights, and you look for the Chametz and the 10 pieces that you put out beforehand. Okay. And more information about all these rituals, you can always reach out, or you can check Chabad.org, or YouTube, I'm sure you can find... Many tutorials about how to do all that stuff. Okay. Wishing everybody happy and healthy. And please, God, we'll see you tomorrow. Take care, everyone. Thank you. All right. We'll see you soon.